welcome to another episode of Beside the Author. I'm Renika, your host and narrator, and this podcast deep dives into the books alongside the actual author. We will look at the books in an in-depth study so you as our listeners and hopefully readers of the book can get a deeper understanding of the author's intended message. In this season, we are examining a book called The Hidden Tree by Valton Brown. The Hidden Tree is a book that examines societal philosophies, ideas and inventions to expose and discuss the historical out-of-sight root system that is fueling the largest global transition since the Industrial Revolution. Let's welcome the author Valton Brown. Hello, Valton. Hello, and thank you for having me on the show. That is more than all right. So last week, we discussed who you are as an author. Mm-hmm. And we explored the introduction of the book, The Hidden Tree. And we addressed the perspective and the stance that you were writing the book from, which was a biblical worldview. And we also looked at why you wrote the book in the first place, which came out of different experiences you had uh, over the years. So yeah, today we'll be looking at chapter one. So we looked at introduction, like I just said last time. And this time we're going to be looking at chapter one and it's called Trading in the souls of men. And if you are a listener who already has purchased the book, please turn with us to chapter one so that you can follow along and highlight different areas that you might have heard that's of interest to you. Let's start, Valton, with a nice high-level question, which I think will be our norm uh, for each chapter, which is, what is the purpose of this chapter, Trading in the Souls of Men? Well, it, it was important to unfold the the message of the book in stages because it was so complex. And trading in the souls of men draws off this idea of, and it's again, it's a biblical text. So it explains how we have so many different things that are used in trade globally. But then in this list of things, of items, we then have people and the souls of people, as the Bible describes it. So it's everything about the human being that is up for sale. I felt that was quite a poignant scripture to include at the beginning because it, it gave us a lens through which to look at right at the very outset of that early stages of this philosophy. And, uh, and that's the reason for beginning the chapter with that, really. Yeah, and just for context, the scripture Valton's referring to is Revelation chapter 18, 11 to 14. And later on in this episode, I'll come back and read that scripture. So yeah, we've got the key text there. And in that text, you've got the phrasing trading in the souls of men. And you're saying that's like the lens that you're going to be looking through for this chapter. Yeah. And when I was reading this chapter, it felt like the chapter was split into two parts. So we have the first section of the Genesis account, and then the second section was then addressing the terminology of trading in the souls of men. And if we start with the first section, which is the Genesis account, I'd like to ask you, why did you focus on the Adam and Eve account? Well, I I believe that if you're reading the Bible and whenever you're looking at a particular concept, you have to begin where it's first mentioned. The book of Genesis that's, I mentioned the account of Adam and Eve that was pivotal to the whole message of the book because there were these two worlds which kept colliding with each other, but it had an origin. 
we have the book of Genesis there to help us understand some of the thought processes behind the original sin and what it would lead up to. So it was important to include that account there. And of course, because we're talking about trading in the souls of men, it's not something that you hear often mentioned in the Bible or anyone preaching about it because it's right there in the book of Revelation and it's at the end of a list of different global items that are of value. So when you put that into context and start to consider it, you then have to think, what was really going on when the serpent entered the garden? What was the end game? Because the book of Revelation, which is the conclusion of all things and tells us what's going to happen at the end, is saying that there would be global trade of people. And I thought that was important to include right at the beginning of the book, because then it would make sense as you move into the other stages. Yeah. And with this account that you brought in of Adam and Eve, when we look at it in a closer magnification, it splits into three themes. So we see the tree, <laughs> transcendence, and sin. And if we take those three parts in sections, I'd like to ask you like questions around each of those mini themes. Yeah. So starting with the tree, how does the Genesis tree relate to future analogies in the book? Well, as the hidden tree is the, the title of the book, which represents a philosophy, that philosophy began somewhere. As the tree in the garden in the book of Genesis, there's a reason for it being there. And the thing that we are often plagued with and that many of us are plagued with is this question of trust. We go around the world looking for some spiritual insight, wanting to understand ourselves better and all the sort of spiritual experiences that are being offered to us. But here in the book of Genesis, it said that this couple that were created, you know, first the first human was made from the earth and then out of that human was the second, made by God from the same flesh, equal in his sight having no barrier between them and their creator. So when you read the Genesis account, you see this beautiful, unified relationship. Now, the tree was placed in the middle of the garden, and people would say, well, why would you place that in the middle of the garden to tempt the first couple? Well, if you're in a perfect relationship with someone, there is no temptation. It's simply trust. Yeah? So that's the picture. That's the perspective from which I was beginning to see this account in Genesis. And then, of course, we have someone who enters that story and then it all begins to change. So the tree from the Genesis account yeah. is the starting point for the future uh, trees that we see later on. And when I say trees, yeah. I mean the eugenics tree. Yeah. You're saying that this kind of parallel idea yes. Yes. is taking place. A absolutely. Because when we are talking about, okay, Let's look at it from a Christian perspective or someone who believes in the God of the Bible, you know, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When we're looking at this tree in the garden, you're looking at a symbol, as I say, of, of trust. God places this there, and he said you can eat of everything and anything but not that tree. Now, what we have to do to understand this fully is to recognize that God did not withhold anything from the first couple. I mean, think about the way that the world was created and the cosmos and all the different things that were implemented that we look up at through telescopes and we travel in space rockets. He lavishly placed on this couple 
everything and anything that they would ever need. And he said this one tree, not to eat of it. So it, I say it in the book, it does symbolize trust. It does symbolize trust. And um, what you always get when there is a biblical truth, there will always be a cheap copy. And that's where the hidden tree becomes the cheap copy because it's a philosophy that's in opposition to what God teaches through his, his word. Let me read this bit here because it links in with what you were saying about trust. So you've written here, by choosing to break that trust, by tasting the fruit of the tree, they made an indelible choice. Rather than accepting an open, honest relationship with all its privileges rooted in love, they chose Satan's philosophy which had not been tried, tested, or proven. Satan had not created this couple, nor did he consider their need for companionship. He had nothing to recommend himself by other than false philosophy, a dishonest agenda, and a false offer of godhood, transcendence, through self-determination. And I think that leads nicely into the next theme, which is transcendence. So you bring in this word quite a few times in this first part of the chapter, why do you focus on transcendent? How does that relate into the Genesis account? Yeah, it's an interesting one because the word transcendence kept appearing when I was looking at the research information behind the book. It's one of those words that when I appreciated what it meant, I was shocked that we could even believe that some of the things that we're striving for were possible. Firstly, when we're faced with science, that is supposed to be, or as we're told, it's meant to be measurable, it's supposed to be concrete, it's not to be fluffy in any way. And yet this word transcendence kept appearing, which was more to do with something that was uh, to do with this, the psyche, the spiritual aspect of man as it was described. And this is where it ties back into the account with the first couple, because what the serpent was offering to those first individuals was something that they had never considered, which is, is it possible that you could have been duped? Is it possible that there is a higher place for you? And of course, what he was offering is knowledge, something you don't know, or at least you think you don't. And the appeal of that meant that they were prepared to take the risk to accept the offer. But why? I mean, they had everything. But it tells us how powerful this drive to know more and to rise above where we are into a place where we can receive more worship, more of me, you know, have more control, more power, more influence. And that's what you see coming through. And the word transcendent simply means that we ascend beyond our physical restrictions into a place of deification. And that's, believe me, it's a common occurrence through some of the individuals in the book constantly striving for this place and they make no apologies for it and it's a really strange thing to see so godhood basically yeah that we are mini gods or equal to god well i would say that what they are looking at is becoming god it's not even being subservient to someone else and this comes out of gnosticism which is this um belief that the god of the old testament is against the Jesus of the new, they're two separate people, and uh, Jesus isn't the son of God, and all these teachings. I mean, this is where Gnosticism on a whole has taken a hold of our thinking, where even Christians start to believe what's said to them, and 
implement it. And then they're questioning the Genesis account because they're going, well, yeah, when I read the Old Testament, uh, it tells me that God's against women. Well, that can't be true because right here we are talking about the uh, book of Genesis and there's a woman and God had nothing against her. He made her equal to yet opposite to the male. And there was no competition between them, you see. So yeah, we have this constant wrestle with this pursuit of knowledge. And it isn't just about knowing things. We need to get that straight. This isn't just about knowing things. This is about having a, an understanding, a way of getting outside of our physical form into another state, which is we would probably describe as spiritual, so that we can go above and beyond what we've been created to be. That is becoming gods. Okay? That's it in its simple form. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought out the term Gnosticism because on page four, you then bring in this idea, contrary to some of the ideas that have been peddled in Gnosticism, God did not play a cruel trick on humanity, nor did he leave us without a remedy. Mm. Yes, it's, I know it sounds really strange to be talking about it sometimes because you think, when I was looking at it, I thought, this is just too strange to believe, surely. We can't be that far gone. But when you look at people like Marcion, who was referred to by Tertullian, who was a historian and different people, going back to the time of the Apostle Paul and, and the people that we read about in the Bible, there was this obvious desire to have some new form of spirituality. And some of it we still borrow from. So even in the way that we talk about the Hebrew scriptures, it can be very um, disturbing because we're, we are almost agreeing with the fact that the God that's in the Hebrew scriptures is an angry God and against everything and everyone, and he's legalistic and all those sorts of things. And then Jesus comes along and it's, it's love and grace and freedom. So we kind of bought into the same philosophy that Gnosticism teaches even comes down to the way that women are treated. Because again, it's something that the apostles were contending with all the time. This Greek influence of philosophy and the worship of deities and having these outer body encounters and going to the priestesses and the temples of all these different gods, so to speak, call them demons really, but going to the priestesses to receive knowledge that you wouldn't get otherwise. It was common. But then to elaborate on that, it becomes really quite strange when you hear of modern thinkers who, again, that make no apology for believing the same things and pursuing the same things. Yeah. And so let's just do a really quick recap there. You've mentioned about the tree, how the tree was a symbol of trust between humanity and God. And then you mentioned about how Satan was peddling, using your words from the book, he was peddling godhood, the idea of transcendence, yeah. the idea of becoming a god and having that power and knowledge. Yes. And you're saying that even in modern times, this transcendence and root or progression to godhood is relevant and is still happening in day to day. Absolutely. And the material that I have behind the book is clearly other people's records of their thoughts about this position of godhood. Now, what I need to also say is that in the book of Genesis, it doesn't use the word Gnosticism, but that pursuit of knowledge, which is gnosis, which is secret knowledge, which means that you have to uh, do something 
to acquire this knowledge that you wouldn't otherwise have had. Now, when you look at the way that Gnostics talk about this knowledge, they have no problem with mentioning the third eye as, as is referenced in Eastern mysticism. So you know that this is not a biblical or, or holy or clean approach to acquiring something that you don't currently have. And of course, with it being connected to deification, this is where we have a problem in the garden because they had actually agreed with Satan, the serpent, to say, I want some of this secret knowledge. And this secret knowledge is what many still pursue through all sorts of different organizations and all sorts of avenues in today's world. This isn't yesterday, today's world. And so we see then that from Adam and Eve accepting Satan's philosophies mm -hmm. and theology about godhood and transcendence, even though, like you said, those words are not specifically written in the Bible, mm -hmm. but we can take from and see the implied message. You then go on to explore the consequences. And that leads into the third theme that you brought out, which was sin. Mm -hmm. So let me just read a little excerpt here on page five. Actually, it starts on page four to page five. As parents to the rest of humanity, Adam and Eve were not the best examples of taking responsibility for their poor choices. This is evident when God confronted both of them about their newfound knowledge regarding nakedness, a concept that had no place in their minds before eating the fruit. They swiftly went ahead to blame someone else for their actions, displaying the first signs of degradation which would trouble humanity for centuries to come. Adam redirected the conversation with God to Eve, Eve redirected the conversation to Satan, and Satan is silent in the text. Job done. Their children, Cain and Abel, became the unfortunate recipients of their parents' legacy by continuing in the family tradition and Satan's philosophy. So here we're starting to see that consequence mm. of being passed on to the children of Cain and Abel. Can you go into a bit more about why you then brought out Cain in particular in chapter one? Well, I'm a great believer that if you want to know why there's a particular problem and you're looking at this thing, go back to the root, go back to the source. You know, what went wrong? And um, the garden, just to elaborate on this little bit again, you mentioned the philosophy of serpent and exactly that's exactly what it was. They actually accepted his teaching, his idea on the world over and above the creator who gave them the world. They already had it. Okay. So this means that they sinned, which is literally missing the mark. They broke covenant with the one who they were in a relationship with, a right relationship. And then, of course, there had to be a consequence to that action because now they'd stepped outside of the realms of God's protection. Ultimately, they'd made a choice. We want to determine our own future. They didn't use these words, but this is what the serpent was offering. Self-determination. You take control of your own destiny. You are gods. You have the power, the control, the authority to do what you want. The tragedy of that was the very first thing that we saw as a result of that choice was how their children grew up and what the result of their relationship was. So we have Cain and Abel, who are brothers, the children of Adam and Eve. And of course, the interesting part for me was 
what's the result of this philosophy? What is the result? Because we preach it in our pulpits that, oh, yes, they sinned, but how did they sin? Oh, they disobey God. Well, yes, that's true. But this goes way deeper than that. So the children now are a manifestation of whatever's happened before. So we have Abel on one hand. He loves God. He serves God with purity and a transparent lifestyle. But then his brother was so self-centered that all he could ever see were the things that he thought he was doing right and God should accept. Typical of how we think now. I do what I want, God accepts it, he should anyway, because I'm the one that's in charge, aren't I? I've got freedom of choice. And that attitude, you begin to see it coming through Cain. And so as it was unfolding to me, and I saw that the choice of the parents to try to ascend beyond where they were, compromised the relationship of their children and generations that would follow after. And that to me was such a poignant thing because when I look at the world around me and I look at the companies and I look at the organizations and all the different philosophies, there is one thing that's common to all of those that are outside of the will of God. And that is they all want to be top dog. They all want to have a person who is in charge of everything and everyone answers to them. Yeah, here you put sin on page six. Sin is at the root of all destructive behavior and is manifest through the unrestrained actions of ordinary people. People who all have the potential to commit abominable acts when God is removed from the picture. Absolutely. And that's the caution, because when we read some of the other articles by today's lecturers and university graduates and professors, uh, it's very easy to believe that somehow all humanity is so wonderful that we never do anything wrong. And um, there's almost this uh, cleansing of the reality to do with who we are. And that's not to walk around with this attitude of, oh, everybody's bad. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that sin is relevant to all of us. Now, I, I emphasize the point that these were brothers, and this is something that I map out in the book, so I won't go into too much detail, but they're brothers, flesh and blood. And yet the attitude of one to the other escalated to such a point where he was quite happy to take his brother out in order to gain the upper hand which he couldn't gain because it was God that was giving it, right? God was the one that was giving the approval of Abel's offering, but he was cautioning Cain, saying sin lies at the door. He knew that this young man was in danger of doing something based on his character and his desire to be in a position of acceptance when he hadn't done what was necessary. And that really, really speaks clearly about how we, how attitudes are today, especially in the West. It's me, myself, and I, and... And yet we, we talk as though it's not. And so what we see those characteristics coming through in Cain. And that's where I think when we're reading the scriptures, we really have to stop, think, pray and say, please, Father, please, Jesus, would you help me not to walk in the way of Cain? And bringing out even further, you've mentioned just about attitudes of people. Hmm. You then go another step and you bring out this other attitude of blaming God for when things are wrong. Yeah. You say this phrase, so how does God get the blame? Can you talk through a bit more about why you felt it was necessary to go into the idea of blaming God for all the issues around the world? And I'll also just give you another phrase from your book. You say on page five, 
it is only the uninformed who believe that religion is the cause of the world's atrocities. Yeah, it's, uh, again, it's a bit like the convenience of being able to say what you want to say to deflect the problem. Going back to Adam and Eve, that's what we saw. The very first reaction to being exposed to the truth was find someone else to blame. Okay? That didn't change. When Cain was found out to have murdered his own brother and he was quizzed about it, he goes, am I my brother's keeper? So he deflected the attention away from himself as though he has no problems. And uh, we do a, exactly the same. God becomes the the easy target to blame for all the things that are bad because we're so clever. So it can't be us. Oh, well, no, 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 it's religion that's done it. Because if all those people believed the same thing and were in peace through religion, through the Bible, we wouldn't have a problem, would we? Northern Ireland and all the places in the Middle East and around the world, we wouldn't have an issue. So we, we spray paint over the truth because when you look at history, a lot of our issues are to do with greed. It's to do with people that are pursuing power. It's to do with small groups, small collective of, of people who have influence, who want the world to be fashioned in their own image. That's where the problems are, and that is what the Bible calls sin. So we have to be very careful when we're listening to these voices. We have to ask, who are they? Why are they saying this? And what's their purpose? Because if God was the one to be blamed, then what they're attesting to is that God actually exists. And if God exists, then the Bible can't be wrong, which means that the Bible says God is love. And if God is love, then he is also just, he's fair, he's reasonable. And we see that from Genesis to Revelation. He's not this angry God looking for people to destroy, he made us. So there are some real conflicts there. And I think that's where the hidden tree is really about trying to bring those discussions and those points out so we can actually review them and think about them rather than accepting the narrative of this philosophy. And I will keep saying that it is a philosophy. It's literally a global cult. It speaks to people in a way that you are indoctrinated and anyone that falls outside of that becomes the next target. You can't be an independent thinker. You've got to follow the main stream of thought, right? But that's not what God wants. He even says in the word, try the spirits. He's, he's not offended when we step back and say, well, is this really you or is this another? I've never heard this before. It's okay, Shelvin, wait till you understand. And that's who God is. That's the one we serve. Amazing. That's really interesting. I think as well, so once you've come to that end point yeah. of addressing sin, the last theme within the three that I pulled out there, and I know there'll be other more nuanced themes going on. So we've looked at the tree. We've looked at transcendence. We've looked at sin as being like a hook to the, I guess, the next entirety of this entire book because it's going to be looking at people's actions and consequences of their choices. Mm. You then make the switch into like the second part of the chapter and you start to bring back the term trading in the souls of men. Mm. Let me just read the scripture. So it's Revelation chapter 18, verse 11 to 14. And it says, and the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her, for no one buys their merchandise anymore. Merchandise of gold and silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen and purple, silk and scarlet, every kind of citron wood, every kind of object of ivory, every kind of object of most precious wood, bronze, iron and marble, 
and cinnamon and incense, fragrant oil and frankincense, wine and oil, fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, and bodies and souls of men. So you highlight the term, trading in the souls of men. And I know at the beginning of this episode, you, you started to unpack that term. But could you go a bit further and really unpack why you emphasise this praise for this chapter? Yeah, when we get further into the chapter, we begin to see this picture of trade that takes place. And uh, it was important to emphasise this because through the, the, the line that goes through the book, at the heart of it, there's going to be people that are paying a price and those that um, are the ones making the, the rules that everyone else has to play by. That's a form of trade. So when we read this in the book of Revelation, it's really the part of the conclusion to the world's events telling us that the merchants of the world, those that have the means to make money, to trade using all of the rich items that are listed there and, and more. I mean, it's using terminology that would be relevant to the reader um, of the book of Revelation, but uh, to actually then consider here at the beginning of the book that what we're going to look at is really the result of a form of trade. And that trade, the most important, most valuable um, items, if I could put it like that, are people. And so this thing that happened, this philosophy, this sin that happened in the, in the garden, then manifests itself in Cain, begins to unfold in our history. And we see that there is this idea of, am I my brother's keeper? No, 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 no. Well, I can make something. I can make myself wealthier and more important by trading using my brother or my sister. And that whole idea follows right the way through to form organizations, organizations that we think are for us, but have in some instances, depending on who's in power at the time, in some instances, they've actually exploited the individuals they say they were helping. That's a form of trade. Um, others have been set up on the back of people who have lost their lives and their livelihoods. It's a form of trade. But then it's easy to say, well, that happens all the time. Yeah, but these people, they planned to sit in those positions of power and authority, and they strategized on how they were going to achieve that, which tells me that their thinking was no different to the serpent that entered the garden. Yes? But it's very different to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is very different to Yeshua, the Messiah, who came to bring restoration to a very, very broken world. And I believe his voice is still ringing out today to call those who hear it, to uh, not harden their heart, not to believe that they are in a position of security, but understand that there is only one king and only one king for a reason. He doesn't abuse power. That is very poignant. I really like that, of what you just explained there. And it's, it's amazing. I think as well, what's also amazing is how much deep information is embedded within even just a short set of pages um and it's very interesting because also you then go on to talk about just a few examples of slave trade that has already happened so the slave, the transatlantic slave trade mm -hmm. and you then touch on the sub-saharan or arab slave trade and you go into a bit of detail about that 
I'm not going to ask you today, I don't think, about going into more detail about that because I know in the next chapter you open that up even more around slavery and how that is relevant to the hidden tree. So I think what we'll do is we'll jump to page 11 and you bring in the account of Balaam and Balak. And when reading it through, it's, it's like you switch into, and I, I keep using that word in this, yeah. in this episode, yeah. switch. Um, but you just bring in an account that seems slightly abstract to everything you were just talking about. So how do you see that bridge between the Balaam account and the Genesis account and also trading in the souls of men? Yeah, I, I think there's the, always going to be a back and forth when looking at the Bible. You only have to read through the book of Revelation and you see how there isn't a linear line drawn through it. But if you connect the dots that are there, it gives you a picture. And it's no different with, with Balaam. You see, we think that this world is full of people who all mean very, very well, you know, and um, <laughs> they're all for you. But we all know that's not the truth. We all know that in our everyday experience, that isn't the truth. So Balaam, to me, represented a form of opposition that will use any means possible to acquire someone else's position of, of influence. Influence they probably don't even realize that they have because Balaam is in context to Israel, who at the time were formed as a nation by God. He called his family, he brought them together, they increased in number. They themselves had been slaves to an Egyptian power and God sent a deliverer to set them free. He gave them a statute at Mount Sinai. He formed them into this people group and said they're going to have land that he would give them bearing in mind if we believe God is the creator of all things, as he gave to Adam and Eve, he gave land to Israel. Uh, he's in charge of it all. So he chose to give them the land. And uh, here we have Balaam, who decided that, or is it Balak, that decided to hire him to somehow use spiritual means to stop this nation from succeeding and achieving their goals. Because the kings around them and all the places they'd been, they just walked in victory one after the other. There was no power that stood in their way. If they were against Israel, they were always, the, the opposition was always defeated. So Balak had hired Balaam to use not physical means, but supernatural means to try and bring about the downfall of Israel. I think that's quite a poignant thing to consider because you're looking at kings who rule nations and have numbers they could have gone against them with armies but they knew in hand-to-hand -hand combat they would be defeated why because they also believed that god existed the god of israel unlike today where we're questioning does god exist it was a given that god existed that there is a higher power who is a person who created all things so this balaam is very key uh, we read about him in the hebrew scriptures and then he, he follows through to what we call the New Testament or New Covenant, and the Apostle Paul makes reference to him and his teachings, and you get his appearance of popping up even in um, some of the prophets as well. So he was a very key character who represented a completely false picture of what it means to be spiritual. He dabbled in the supernatural. He involved himself in anything that was of that kind 
to bring about his, his employer's results. And that's why Paul cautions us about the teaching of Balaam. It's, it's important to understand that the philosophies that we have around us and the philosophies that we're exposed to in whatever form is not safe and it's not for us. It's quite dangerous. And sadly, much of it is infiltrating the pulpits that we are gluing ourselves to through the TV screens and, and what have you. And I'm not saying to mistrust everybody and everything. And what I am saying is that the Bible is very clear that we have to question, we have to ask the questions because the teaching of Balaam is still around. You see, he didn't defeat Israel that time, but what he did do was he used the means of enticing them out of their position because he knew if they walked outside of what God has said, just like Adam and Eve, they would be exposed, they'd be vulnerable, and then we can attack them. And that's exactly what he did, and he used seduction to, to bring them out of their safe zone and that's how he uh, helped the enemies to overrun Israel. And we have the same issue. There's no point trying to promote an idea of building a congregation with people and at the same time you're a Freemason who believes in it wholeheartedly or you're, uh, you go down the, the road to your local tarot card reader and come back to the church and you're preaching the same message that you receive from them. I mean, these are things that you might think is not possible, but... That's the kind of world we're living in. It's a time of apostasy. So are you saying that the account for Balaam was used in a way as a metaphor for adopting the theology of Satan and how that's being used? In reality, the, uh, the account of Balaam is in there because he represents everything that we shouldn't be doing. That's really the bottom line of it. And... Um, Remember, it's a form of spirituality. And what do we hear today? Literally, you can choose anything you want, be anything you want. Uh, you can fashion your own religion if you like. But that is counter to what God says in the Bible. So if as Christians we say we believe God's word, the Bible, or what Yeshua says, then we also have to be honest enough to say, well, I fall short of that. I need to go back and ask the Father, what do I do? How do I change my life to fall back in line with who he is so I can have that right relationship that he has ordained for us. Because he didn't just leave Adam and Eve and say, that's the end of it for you. We read in scriptures much later that the lamb, Yeshua the Messiah, was prepared so that he could restore such broken covenants, such broken relationships. And then at the end of everything, yeah, you then just summarize all that you said and you bring in and weave in how they all relate in an end. So it's from like page 12 to 13. You say it is all too easy to shake our fists at heaven when we are ignorant of how God works and thinks. After all, if we can be advisors to the creator, he won't be God, right? You must remember that God's perspective on atrocities surpasses our calculations and finite minds. He isn't basing his information on hearsay, third-hand information or the immediate scenario alone. This is how we judge matters when confronted by our judicial system. For example, when we consider the term trade in so slaves and souls of men, we at once identify with numbers to quantify the impact inflicted on society. However, we know by the revealed word of God, the Bible, that the aftermath of such acts of sin rips mercilessly through the very fabric of homes, communities and nations. Yeah, that's all about God's perspective. We really have to step back and, and ask 
how does he see the world? How does he see me? Of course, it's easy for us to project onto him how we think and, and behave. You know, we, you, you must have been in a situation where people have said certain things to you and it's based on their assumptions of who you are because that's how, what they would do. They, they think you would do the same because that's what they would do and yet that's what we project onto God. And I, I think it's important to understand that all of this that's written at the beginning of the book is, as I say, a, going back and forth to lay out a, a broad foundation because some of the information that you would then read later is critical to understanding those initial bits, those initial bits of information. It's so valuable to then get into grips with the, the narrative that would follow. And this is really how it came to me as well. So this is important to remember. I was as much surprised by what I was going to be reading as well as what I, I wrote in the book or was led to write in the book. And I believe that the, the reader will be taken through those avenues and eventually land at a safe place. Thank you so much today, Valton, for joining us. And um, it's been a great time to explore through the first chapter. And I know that the next chapters will keep on building, like you said, <laughs> onto what we've previously been reading. Yeah, if I could, could say as well, I think for the listeners, it's so important to stick with the book. Keep a notepad by your side and a pen. If you have to pause, consider some of the pictures that are in there, some of the information that's in there. There are links to some of the resources. There are roadmaps as to where you can find those bits of information, but don't stop at reading the book. Ask the questions. Be inquisitive about who God is. Be inquisitive about some of the things that even you've heard that I've not mentioned in the book, because that's what this is about. It's about removing that veil of mystery, because we're not pursuing secret knowledge. This is not Gnosticism. This is about pursuing someone who cares about you more than you care about yourself. Thank you so much again. You're welcome. Thank you. Next episode, we will be looking into chapter two, the soil, the blood of people. If you enjoyed what you listened to today, but haven't purchased the book, the book is available on all major retailers such as Amazon and Waterstones. And we hope you can join us for the next episode beside the author. Thank you.